0: Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Approximately one in three people in the U.S. between ages 65 and 74 have hearing loss, and nearly half of those older than 75 have difficulty hearing Management of hearing loss is based on addressing underlying causes, while treatment may include medication, surgery, or hearing aids. My guest today is Dr. Brian Taylor, an audiologist and senior director of audiology with Signia. He's going to talk about hearing loss among older adults, including causes, symptoms, and treatment and prevention. He'll also discuss everything you should know about buying and wearing hearing aids. So welcome, Dr. Taylor, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Cheryl. Great to be with you.
0: Let's get kind of a baseline here about age-related hearing loss. What is it? At what age does it commonly occur? And then talk more specifically about older adults, why they tend to lose their hearing as they get older, and what, what contributes to that? What kinds of conditions?
1: Sure. Uh, Age-related hearing loss is really just kind of the results of a combination of genetics and wear and tear um, over time. Um, The inner ear specifically is very sensitive to uh, noise um, of any type. And uh, as a person gets older, they're more likely to um, have this medically benign condition called age-related hearing loss. Uh, Typically, it starts It actually starts much uh, sooner than people realize. Um, It starts when people are in their 30s and 40s, but people typically don't notice it until they get into their 50s and 60s. Of course, there's a lot of individual variability. Um, I like to say that age-related hearing loss is sort of like how people, uh, as they get, when they they get gray some people get gray when they're in their 30s other people never get gray and the same thing kind of applies with hearing loss it varies a lot from person to person
0: if some an older adult believes that they have a hearing problem or they might have a hearing bro- problem what are some of the causes what are the warning signs that they should begin to think about and notice
1: sure i think that if you're starting to if you're noticing I, I, Actually, other people usually notice it before you do. So if you have a loved one, a spouse, a close friend who may be saying, hey, you're not hearing as well now as you did a few years ago, um, there's a pretty good chance they're right. So other people typically notice it before uh, you do. Uh, but if you're noticing that you're maybe lip reading a little bit more, uh, that you're having to turn up the television, those are all indications that uh, your hearing is starting to gradually decline.
0: And are there different kinds of hearing loss?
1: Right. Well, there's different, uh, different parts of the ear involved as a site of the, of, the, of the problem. It could be an outer ear problem, could be middle ear, could be inner ear. Uh, And then there's different degrees of hearing loss. Uh, Those are typically when we talk about age-related hearing loss, we're talking about the inner ear, uh, the cochlea, uh, which is housed in the uh, the, bony shell uh, in the skull. Uh, We're talking about the cochlea and the the pathways to the brain. That's typically where age-related hearing loss occurs. is, uh, that's, that's the part of the ear that's typically affected by age-related hearing loss, which we also know the, 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 the uh, official term is presbycusis for anybody out there that wants to know what uh, the diagnosis might be. Presbycusis is, is the term that we use to describe uh, age-related hearing loss. But anyway, typically it, it affects the inner ear, uh, but all uh, other sites of the ear, other locations in the ear can also be impacted by hearing loss.
0: And one thing I wanted to ask you also Brian is does hearing loss age related hearing loss affect women more than men are certain races or cultures more likely to have age related hearing loss what are the statistics out there
1: Well I don't know of any big differences across races or cultures I just I knew that I do know that men typically have a higher prevalence of of age related hearing loss than women and I think that's probably because they usually have uh, noisier jobs, noisier occupations, noisier hobbies. Uh, so you might see a little bit higher prevalence for males relative to females. And I think the same thing kind of holds true maybe across cultures. I do know that there's studies that show uh, different cultures uh, in you know very remote parts of the world that are not industrialized uh, had much lower rates of age-related hearing loss than cultures that uh, were industrialized. But those are studies that go back, you know, 50 to hundred years ago.
0: And so if people are beginning to have these symptoms that you've been mentioning um, is medical attention required immediately, or can you put it off because there does seem to be such a stigma associated and, and please talk about that. But one, I can't help but wonder, if you don't get the hearing loss treated, are you going to be deaf? I mean, what, what, are, what are the ramifications?
1: Well, that's a really good question, and I want to be careful on how I answer it, because most, the majority of hearing losses are gradual. And gradual hearing losses don't require immediate attention. They're not an emergency. But there are some types of hearing loss that are an emergency, If you wake up one day and you can't hear out of one ear, uh, if you wake up one day and you have vertigo or severe dizziness, uh, if you have uh, severe pain or drainage in your ear, those are all indications that you should see a physician immediately. And there's about a 48 to 72 hour window of time with those conditions, sudden hearing loss and vertigo, that if you don't get the treatment that you need, uh, that hearing loss could be permanent. Now, those, those kinds of cases, I don't want to alarm anybody. We don't see a lot of those cases, but they do exist, and you want to make sure that uh, you see somebody right away. But the vast majority of cases of hearing loss are of gradual onset. Uh, people don't notice them sometimes for years. Uh, you can go a long time uh, and kind of get by. It's easy to develop coping strategies when you have gradual hearing loss. Um, but it's always, as a general rule, when you get into your 50s, uh, even if you're a really healthy individual, it's good to get a baseline hearing test.
0: And is it true that there there is kind of a, a stigma that people do tend to postpone consulting a, a hearing health provider just because Gosh, it's a sign of getting old or whatever. What, what do you see?
1: I mean, I think it's debatable about stigma. Some people believe there's a strong stigma attached to hearing loss. Others, not so much. Uh, personally, I do think that uh, there is a bit of a stigma. I think it is an indication of people getting older um, that there's an there's a stigma that uh if you have hearing loss, it's you're like one step from the grave and you're an old codger that, uh, you know, is not able to participate in society. I don't think that stigma is as strong as it used to be. I do think there's a stigma around wearing hearing aids in, in some cases because that's an indication uh, that a person's getting older and uh, you know, our society sometimes doesn't value older people the way they should. Uh, so, yes, I do believe there is a stigma both with hearing aids and with uh, age related hearing loss.
0: And so, if a person or some listeners are hearing what you're saying and thinking, well, maybe it is time to go and get my hearing checked out, explain what the difference is between an ENT. And an audiologist, who who would they see, and when, and where? What what would be the process?
1: Sure, I think both professions are good entry points into the into getting a hearing test. Uh, you know, if you haven't seen anyone before, a professional, you could go to both an ENT or an audiologist, and they would be able to uh, get the baseline test that you need. Uh, the major difference is, is an otolaryngologist or an ENT has gone to medical school. Uh, They've gone through the residency. Uh, They typically um, uh, perform surgery on ears, Uh, whereas an audiologist has a doctorate degree in audiology, but it's more along the lines of the um, uh, rehabilitation and and management over time. Uh, if, If you know the difference between a physical therapist and an orthopedic physician, it's sort of the same with audiology and ENT. Uh, one is one has gone to medical school and one has not, and often they work together uh, in diagnosis and treatment of all different types of hearing loss.
0: And to that point then, uh, Brian, I'm assuming that if somebody does go to an ENT, and as you were mentioning that the audiologist and the ENT work together, the kind of tests that an audiologist would Provide are all of these uh, these tests, the hearing tests, and uh, what a person like yourself was an audiologist, is that covered by Medicare or other kinds of insurance?
1: Medicare and most insurances cover the testing, but Medicare does not cover hearing aids. Some insurance, some uh, private insurances. Some uh, a, a growing number of Medicare Advantage programs, uh, at least in part, reimburse for hearing aids. But Medicare only pays for hearing tests; they do not pay for hearing aids.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the hearing tests. Um, I, I myself, I re- I know I've experienced sitting in that. It seems like an isolation booth, and <laughs> with headphones on, and trying to figure out which button to press in terms of hearing. So talk more about that because I think that's really helpful, how hearing loss is measured, what do the test results, how are they interpreted, how often should we get tested, what, what do we need to know, and when do we need to get nervous about the results?
1: Well, usually uh, there's two things we look at when we test someone's hearing. We look at uh, threshold, how sensitive is, is uh, your hearing, uh, that's where the audiogram comes in and uh, we put somebody in a in a soundproof proof room or booth because we want a, a controlled environment. we want that we want the test to be accurate. We don't want any any sort of noise at all. and even if you're in a in a office that's quiet, there's still a fair amount of background noise just from the hum of the air conditioner or the electricity. So that's why we put somebody in a soundproof booth just to have absolutely. Uh, quiet, controlled uh, settings when we do the test. But uh, the test looks at two things, sensitivity across those different pitches on the audiogram, low frequency, mid frequency, where most speech sounds are and higher frequencies, Uh, you know, like a whistling sound is a higher frequency or a bird chirping. So we look at the entire spectrum of frequencies, how sensitive your hearing is. And as you get older, um, you usually lose the high frequency sounds first. You get a mild uh, hearing loss in the high frequencies that starts when you're in your 40s and 50s, um, sometimes sooner. Um, so we look at sensitivity. The other thing we look at is how clear uh, you can understand speech, uh, which is a little bit different uh, aspect of your hearing, but we, make, we deliver uh, some carefully calibrated uh, sentences or words. Uh, at a certain level that's loud enough for you to hear, we wanna see how clear the entire audit- auditory system uh, picks up that, uh, that language or that speech. And so we measure the uh, word recognition or sentence recognition ability, usually it's done in quiet, uh, but a growing number of audiologists recognize the importance of doing that test in noise, uh, because that's where people seem to have the most amount of trouble with their hearing is background noise. So we want to test in an environment that mimics uh, where the problem happens in the real world.
0: I do have to ask, because as I said, I've had this test any number of times. And is it possible that people you know, especially the very, very high pitched sounds that you're not really sure. And so it's better to press the button if you think you hear it than not to press the button. I just have to know because, as I said, you you feel like you don't want to flunk this test and uh, and you don't want to really admit that you might have a hearing problem. So are the results always accurate or can there be some variation depending on not sure whether you heard something or didn't?
1: Well, when you're instructed to do the test, uh, you're usually instructed to, even if you think you hear it, it's okay to guess. Um, That's where the audiologist training comes into play because there's a certain procedure that we use, um, and I won't get into the details, but there's a very certain procedure that's been around since the, the 1940s that allows that test to be accurate within a couple of about five DB, if that means anything to people. So meaning you can have that test done four or five times. And if the person is using the correct procedure, uh, your hearing loss will be within plus or minus five DB every time, assuming the test is done um, with using the same procedure. So it's an accurate test and it's okay to guess.
0: (laughs) Well, that makes me feel better. Um, So after you've done this test is there then certain ranges then that say okay well you're still doing okay and you don't need hearing aids or or whatever versus you know you're certain you're at a range now where probably you should and then is it important then to get a repeat of the of the test in case it's kind of like in the uncertain zone as to what the results are, as to when you should get it again. So those kind of two questions.
1: Yeah, well, it's really hard to, there's a certain criteria on the audiogram. If you reach a certain amount of hearing loss, we usually average 1,000, 2,000, and 4,000 hertz. We average the thresholds at those three sites or those three frequencies. And if it's greater than, say, 35 or 40, that would be a strong indication that hearing aids would benefit you. But that's very kind of loose, I think, in the sense that there are a lot of folks out there that have relatively or close to normal audiograms, and they struggle a lot in background noise, and they are really good hearing aid candidates. Uh, It kind of speaks to the fact that the audiogram is not all that sensitive, and that there's other, uh, I mentioned speech and noise testing, we look at that result. Uh, we look at different kinds of uh, uh, validated uh, questionnaires that assess somebody's hearing, uh, their perception of the problem, like on a one-to-five scale, how much does this impact you socially, how much does this impact you emotionally, and if you get a certain score on those self-reports or those questionnaires, that would be another indication, even if you have d- relatively good hearing on the audiogram. Uh, that Maybe you're a hearing aid candidate uh, if you're motivated. So it's more than just the hearing test and the hearing loss per se that we look at to determine candidacy. Assuming that a person doesn't have any sort of a sudden hearing loss, like I mentioned before, uh, and it's a a gradual uh, type of a hearing loss associated with age and wear and tear, I would say once every year, maybe once every couple of years is probably uh, sufficient uh, to monitor it.
0: And I would be remiss if I didn't mention tinnitus or tinnitus. It's a condition I know that lots of older people have, and uh, myself included. So talk about that, and what are the causes, symptoms, and 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 treatment, if there is one, and how might that impact the results of the uh, audiogram or the the test that you provide? Folks. Yeah. That-
1: That's a a big question. And tinnitus and tinnitus, I think it's both are acceptable pronunciations. I interchange them all the time. Uh, It's ringing of the ear. And uh, it's usually an indication that there's some damage in the auditory pathway, anywhere from the outer ear where wax builds up all the way to some type of a medical pathology with the auditory nerve. Uh, That's why it's important to get the test done. Uh, and other further testing, depending on uh, the severity of the symptoms. But um, tinnitus um, uh, is usually uh, very much associated with hearing loss. They kind of go hand in hand. Uh, If you have ringing uh, in one or both ears, uh, there's a pretty good chance, but not always, but there's a good chance you're going to have some amount of hearing loss. Uh, There's all kinds of treatment options. uh, Everything from uh, wearing hearing aids so that you don't notice it. I think the important point for your listeners is that uh, most, but not all, but most types of tinnitus—that's—it's uh, a symptom of damage to the ear. Uh, there's not a cure in most cases, uh, with a few exceptions. But for the most part, you want to—it's—it's a, it's a something that you want to first rule out any kind of a medical problem. So, for example, if you have tinnitus in one ear only, uh, that would be an indication you probably get, should get some further testing done. Um, assuming that there's not any kind of an underlying medical condition, then it becomes an issue of something that we do. We want to manage, uh, when we look at types of tinnitus, we want to manage. The key question is, is the tinnitus bothersome and, uh, something like 80 to 85% of cases of tinnitus are not bothersome and people just sort of learn to live with it and ignore it. I, I, I fall into that category. I've had tinnitus in one ear for many, many years, and uh, I've learned to just kind of not pay attention to it. Uh, some people, that's not what they, they're not able to do that. Um, and then you look at ways to manage it. Biofeedback, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, some type of a device uh, to help you sleep. Device meaning like masker that create or noise generator uh, at the bed table on your bedside table. Uh, Sometimes people use their phone, they do relaxation therapy with different types of noises. Uh, There's over the counter kinds of treatments. Most of them have not been validated. So there's a huge industry around tinnitus management. Uh, My best advice is if you have a question about it, seek out an otolaryngologist or an audiologist for uh, more information about your own case.
0: And one other possible treatment isn't earwax removal also a possible sure. uh, treatment?
1: Earwax can cause tinnitus. It can block your uh, eardrum, and when you, the ear canal is fully occluded, occluded with wax, uh, there's a good chance you're going to have tinnitus. And you take the wax out, and the tinnitus goes away. So yes.
0: And uh, one final question: I was just going to ask the the sound, as I understand it, as far as tinnitus can vary too. It could be chirping or sounding like crickets. Is that true?
1: Yes, it varies quite a bit. Some audiologists will take the time to try to match the tinnitus with their audiometer to see what it might be. I I don't know of any studies that says that a certain sound means that it's a certain cause of tinnitus. But yeah, the the type of noise that you hear uh, can vary um, across individuals. And even in one individual, the noise can change from day-to-day or moment-to-moment
0: okay well we are going to take a short break right now if you tuned in late we are talking about age-related hearing loss today and our guest is dr brian taylor who is an audiologist he's also the senior director of audiology with signia so we'll be hearing more about treatments uh in the second half But we just want you all to know that you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. And we'll be right back. Welcome back. Our discussion today is about age-related hearing, and we're getting lots of good information from Dr. Brian Taylor, who's an audiologist. And uh, Brian, during the first half, we talked a lot about symptoms and causes and tinnitus. And so we really want to spend the rest of our time talking about what are the various treatments for hearing loss and really, hear a lot of what you have to say about hearing aids. But before doing so, I wanted to ask one question about other kinds of possible treatment modalities. Surgical procedures is is really important one. So if you could talk to us about that, and what would be the criteria that would determine when that's recommended versus something that's a little bit more conservative, like hearing aids or maybe even medication. But let's start with uh, surgical procedures.
1: Well, when it comes to surgical procedures, uh, there are a few options for somebody that might have a condition that involves the middle ear. Uh, sometimes, um, and these conditions are not all that common, uh, but uh, there might be reconstruction of the three small bones of the middle ear or a restructure of the eardrum, the tympanic membrane. In some cases, when you uh, have a surgical intervention that um, rebuilds those uh, parts of the middle ear, you can restore some hearing. But, um, and there are some implantable uh, devices for the brainstem and the cochlear, cochlear implant, I guess that would fall under uh, surgical intervention as well. But, um, you know, back to our original topic of age-related hearing loss, uh, surgery is not going to help that condition.
0: One thing I did mention during the my uh, introduction was about the possible medication. Are there any medications that are used to help hearing loss or not?
1: Well, if you have a sudden hearing loss, uh, we talked about before, you wake up one day and one ear doesn't seem to hear at all, otolaryngologists will prescribe different kinds of medication to try to get that ear going again. If you have a cold and your ears feel stuffy, you could have middle uh, otitis media, which is fluid behind the, the eardrum. Uh, antibiotics sometimes are an appropriate treatment for that. Uh, that's something that we see in children more than adults, but it can happen in adults as well. Uh, you could have an outer ear infection, also known as a swimmer's ear Uh, that can cause some hearing loss that would also be amenable to to medication. Uh, But again, the vast majority of cases with age-related gradual hearing loss, medications are not uh, the solution.
0: Okay. Well, then that's a good segue into what we need to know about hearing aids. But let's kind of just think about it as a starter of why why is it or do you find that older adults often don't want to wear hearing aids? What, what do you hear when, you, when you've had patients uh, that you've treated or seen? What do they say?
1: Well, I think that uh, a big part of it is you have to learn to get something in and out of your ear, not so much now, but uh, until recently, change a battery every week. Uh, and it's kind of a hassle to, to start that new routine. Uh, and it takes time for your brain to kind of get rewired to the sounds that they haven't heard in a long time. And they may have friends that have complained about them, uh, hearing aids being kind of a more of a nuisance than, than, than a help, uh, in some cases. And those are some reasons why people maybe delay, uh, treatment. Plus, I think I mentioned before, when you have a hearing loss of gradual onset, it's really easy to develop coping strategies, you know, cup your hand behind the ear, rely more on lip reading, turn up the television as scotch if you need to, uh, rely on your spouse uh, to help you fill in the blank of the message that you may have missed. So those are all reasons why it's, I think, really easy to kind of put off treatment until the problem gets even worse.
0: In fact, I also was thinking, too, that uh, I did a program about hearing aids about three years ago when we were really in the uh, right in the center of COVID. And I know people were having difficulties wearing masks and dealing with hearing aids because they come off sometime. And it's a little scary because since there seems to be an increase in COVID right now, although hopefully folks have gotten vaccinated and it's not as serious, but might that also still be a problem?
1: Sure. Well, I think that you bring up an interesting point, Cheryl, when people started wearing masks back, what, three and a half years ago, uh, a whole lot of people with uh, gradual hearing loss started to notice even more difficulty because they were the folks that were relying on lip reading. And now they didn't have that available to them. And it became, and that their problem became even more apparent. Uh, But yes, with uh, the, the, mask that can kind of get in the way of uh, hearing aids as well.
0: Something to think about if we have to start wearing masks a, a little bit oftener. So overall then, Brian, when you're prescribing or suggesting to folks that, you know, they need to think about hearing aids, how do you present it? What do you say the benefits are and also the limitations? What, what do people need to know if they're really thinking about it and weighing whether this is this is the time to start thinking about it seriously.
1: Well, it's really a quality of life issue. I think that uh, not only would a person hear better day to day, so your communication is greatly improved, but we know that with better communication comes more participation and in, in activities, uh, more productivity at work, less tired at the end of the day, uh, more like I mentioned, uh, more likely to participate. In the activities that you like to do, uh, so it's really a quality of life issue. I think that um, more than you know, obviously you're gonna you're going you're gonna communicate more communicate with people more effectively. But it's all the things that flow from good communication that, that are meaningful to the individual that that you want to focus on. Uh, those are the, those are the advantages. The limitations, I think, they're not that really. Uh, besides the cost. Is learning new routines. You got to get these things in and out of your ear every day. You got to learn how to to charge the battery. Uh, You know, put it in a sort of like charging your iPhone. You got to put it in, plug it in every night when you're not using it. Uh, Learning how to hear again or listen again. Those are all kind of the things that take a little bit of effort and time.
0: But obviously, what you're telling us is that the benefits far outweigh the limitations.
1: (laughs) I think so. Yes.
0: Okay. And I would take that one step further. Have have there been studies that would um, verify that hearing aids can actually preserve mental capabilities and perhaps even protect against dementia, which we see, of course, as folks get older?
1: Yeah, I think we. I want to be careful on how I answer that question because there's a lot of misinformation out there. I mean, because this is kind of a, for the last decade in in the profession of audiology, this has been a really hot topic, looking at the relationship between untreated hearing loss and cognitive decline. And so one thing I, I don't think we can say is that hearing loss causes cognitive decline or dementia. But what we can say with a lot of accuracy is that hearing loss and cognitive decline and dementia are linked, meaning the greater your hearing loss, the more likely you are to suffer from cognitive decline and even dementia. Now, rather, re- and this has been studied for at least 10 years at some very well-respected institutions, uh, namely Johns Hopkins in the United States and some other places around the world. But recently, like back in July of 2023, this, this year, uh, there was what I would call a a landmark study that looked at uh, using what's called a randomized controlled trial that showing that uh, hearing aids uh, in people that are older and at risk for dementia, that the use of hearing aids slows down cognitive decline in that at-risk population. And that's, I think, really important news to share with people that if you – treat your hearing loss, wear hearing aids, that uh, one of the benefits would be slowing down uh, cognitive decline. And we have some really good data now that would suggest that happens.
0: That's that's, uh, good to know. And I'm wondering if hearing aids are prescribed, what are good tips to know before purchasing? What do people need to know in terms of cost? And what other factors also would they need to know?
1: Sure, I think there's two drivers of the cost. One is the technology inside the hearing aid, how it works, the sophistication level of it, the way it connects to your phone, that type of thing. And then the other uh, driver of the cost is the service that you get with it. And that's, in my opinion, for most patients, the service is just as important as the technology inside the devices because there's all kinds of, of things that can crop up unexpectedly uh, with the way it fits in your ear, uh, the way that it sounds, the way that you uh, learn how to use them over time that require the expertise of an individual, I think. Uh, now, there are exceptions to that. There are some patients that can kind of do it themselves and be just fine. But almost everybody, I think, from time to time, if anything, needs a recheck of their hearing, they need to have the hearing aids cleaned, recalibrated, and uh, you can't do that stuff on your own. Uh, So those are some of the drivers of cost.
0: And to that point, then, the other thing I wanted to hear more about, and I'm sure our listeners do as well, is the new federal role about the -the over-the-counter hearing aids. Uh, When did that go into effect? And might purchasing those prevent some of those factors that you were just mentioning that, you know, getting it checked or getting it cleaned or getting them cleaned. Uh, wh- what should we know about over the counter?
1: One of the more exciting uh, uh, events in our profession over the last few years, uh, back last October, October of 2022, uh, the FDA began regulating uh, over the counter hearing aids. It uh, came out with some specific labeling requirements a new category of devices. Uh, So up until uh, October of 2022, all hearing aids were what we would call prescription hearing aids, had to be uh, purchased or acquired through a licensed professional. Uh, But last year at this time, the FDA created this new category. We could essentially buy them off the shelf without any involvement from a licensed professional, uh, without even a hearing test. Uh, and uh, the really interesting thing about over-the-counter hearing aids is uh, they're really for people that have uh, perceived mild to moderate hearing loss, uh, no underlying medical conditions. Um, they could buy these at their local uh, electronic shop. They can buy them online uh, and then fit themselves. So self-fitting over-the-counter hearing aids are for some people uh I think that buyer beware though because uh, if it's not working to your satisfaction if it hurts your ear if it's whistling in your ear uh, if you don't if you're not getting the benefit that you think you need uh, those are all indications that you need to see a professional and even if you bought the hearing aids over the counter many profession many audiologists will see you uh, for service but I think you'd have to pay a little bit out of pocket for that service.
0: So in general, unless you can plan to pretty much take care of yourself, that's probably a good way of knowing whether or not to see an audiologist in terms of getting a prescription versus the OTC. Right. Well,
1: mean? I don't want to I don't want to minimize the value of OTC. I think that there is a place for it and given the fact that something like 80% of people that need hearing aids don't wear them. There is a place for OTC, especially for somebody who maybe is uh, has a milder hearing loss, uh, maybe somebody who's tech savvy and really is comfortable using their phone. OTC is a great entry point. But most people, uh, as they get older, as their hearing loss gets a little bit worse, uh, that service component is really important.
0: And I would just emphasize or ask you to emphasize again that hearing aids are not covered by Medicare or, or, or are they covered by any kind of insurance policy? They
1: are not covered by Medicare, but they are covered by many Medicare Advantage uh, supplement programs. Uh, many Many insurance companies now, private insurance companies, Medicare Advantage plans cover at least in part, hearing
0: aids. I think that's important for families to mm-hmm. to know. Yes. And one thing I would like to hear more about because there are new innovations coming out all the time and again another factor that you mentioned that's difficult pertains to background noise that that can really be an issue for people when they do have hearing aids. What do we need to know there if, if they have that? Is that often the, the greatest problem? How is this being addressed? What's happening?
1: Uh, yeah, every uh, for the last 30 years, uh, there have been many surveys of hearing aid wearers, people with hearing loss that don't wear hearing aids. And invariably, the number one challenge issue problem those individuals have is inability to hear in background noise. Uh, even if you only spend a few hours a month in noisy situations, those can be often the most important uh, socially critical moments of your life and uh, therefore hearing in background noise is sort of the number one challenge that we all face. Um, A couple things I want to make sure your listeners know about. Number one, a person's ability to hear in background noise is highly individualized. Some people do really well in background noise when you turn up the volume, make sounds audible, which is really what the number one function of a hearing aid, when you do that, you can hear sometimes as well as a person who's 20 or 30 years old. I mean, think about it. Everybody, when they go into a restaurant or a noisy area, everybody is challenged by background noise. But why is it that somebody who's younger, 20 and 30, why do they usually do better than somebody who's 70 or 80 or 90? Well, the auditory system as you get older doesn't work as well. But my point is, some people do really well in background noise with hearing aids, others really struggle. Uh, One, there's a test called the Quick Speech and Noise Test that every patient should have before they buy or acquire hearing aids. It kind of tells you uh, objectively how you're doing in background noise. So, hearing and noise is highly variable. Some people struggle some people don't with hearing aids if you're somebody that struggles with hearing aids then you need to look at what are some ways what are some what what types of technology go into the hearing aid to uh, improve my ability to hear a noise and the 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 quick answer to that is uh, microphone technology Uh, there's uh, very sophisticated microphones on hearing aids some are more sophisticated than others Uh, And there's also something called remote microphones that usually use your phone and stream the hearing, the sound directly from your phone into your hearing aids. Uh, Those are all, those microphone technologies are really important, especially for somebody who struggles in background noise.
0: And to that point then Brian are there different levels of sophistication then or features within a, a hearing aid that help to address some of these issues and does the more sophisticated hearing aid cost more money or, or how is it determined what you get and and how much you pay or this kind of thing what do they need to know
1: Yeah uh, well I think that even entry level hearing aids have good what we call directional microphone systems uh, another term for directional microphone system is an array microphone uh, the generic uh, way to describe it is uh, spatially based noise reduction meaning that a, a directional system uh, is more sensitive to sounds in the front than sounds from the side and the back and for the hearing aid wear, for even a basic directional system, if you keep the talkers of interest in the front and try to keep the noise to the side and behind you, those kinds of systems, even in a basic hearing aid, work really well. Um, now, as you step up in technology and as you step up in price, that basic system that I just described gets more sophisticated, where it can recognize If there's a talker on the side or even the back, it's smart enough to recognize that that is speech and it will amplify it. And that's what's called process-based noise reduction. So it's really a combination of spatially-based noise reduction from a directional microphone and then what we would call process-based noise reduction, which is the hearing aid's ability uh, to be smart enough to recognize the pattern of speech and amplify it when it sees it and the most sophisticated hearing aids combine the spatial and the process based noise reduction in an automated way
0: the other part that i was also wondering is the cosmetic aspects i mean in the early days i think again there was a reluctance about hearing aids just because oh my gosh as, some, as soon as somebody sees somebody with a hearing aid you know they are labeled mislabeled quite frankly but it seems like it's much more sophisticated. Sometimes they're behind the ear or talk about the cosmetic and how the design of hearing aids has improved over the years to make it more acceptable to wear a hearing aid.
1: Yeah. This is a pet peeve of mine that you bring up. Uh, the First, before I answer the question, let me just say that when OTC became a category, there was a whole lot of press uh, and it seemed like every newspaper Uh, article, every television uh, spot on it, you always saw these hearing aids that looked like they were from the 1970s. They were really big and clunky. And there are no, in most of these ads or most of these articles and stories, the hearing aids they showed haven't been around for many years. Um, And so I think the press was kind of where they got the pictures of these products. But uh, long story short, the devices now are uh, in about 80-85% of hearing aids uh, worn in the U.S. go behind the ear. Extremely thin, extremely uh, light, so thin that uh, – and they use a wire to connect the plumbing that goes in your ear canal to the electronics over your ear. There's a very thin wire. You don't even see that. Um, there's a few that go deep inside your ear, and there's some advantages to the small, what we call completely in the canal, and that's probably – of devices are like that, Uh, but uh, cosmetics these days should not be an issue, uh, especially in a world where so many people now walk around with earbuds.
0: Can't tell the difference, right?
1: (laughs) No. Hearing aids look a lot better than the earbuds, in my opinion.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I also was wondering, talk a little bit about adjustment time. I would assume it might probably varies, but enlighten us. Are there certain circumstances that we should know in terms of how long it takes to really be comfortable wearing a hearing aid?
1: Yeah, I think there's two components to this. One is the psychological component, basically like learning how to listen again, because there's so many sounds. If you've had a hearing loss for more than a decade, there's so many sounds that are in our environment that it's probably good that you don't hear them. And all of a sudden you're reawakened to all these sort of benign, innocuous sounds in the environment like the air conditioner. And so it takes, there's a psychological component probably, I don't know, a month or two usually to get used to it. The other component that's really interesting, and we're still doing a lot of research in this area, is the the physical component of the brain actually rewiring uh, as sound is reintroduced. And there's all kinds of exciting research that shows... Once you reintroduce sound through a hearing aid, uh, you sort of stimulate these parts of the brain that haven't been used in a while. They, they become reawakened, and that rewiring process takes sometimes up to about six months to fully occur, and it only happens um, if you wear the hearing aids uh, consistently and they're properly fitted to you. And I find that to be really interesting, showing the plasticity of the brain and the impact hearing aids have on it when they're properly worn.
0: And I was also wondering if a person who's now wearing a hearing aid, do they still have to have these professional tests that audiologists give that we've talked about earlier?
1: As a general rule, I think uh, you should probably have your hearing rechecked every couple of years, once or twice, once every every. Year or two, uh, unless of course you notice some sort of a sudden change or the hearing aids aren't working uh, the way they were a few months ago, those would be indications that you should probably have your hearing checked again. Because, like I said before, the two things we look at is the sensitivity, the thresholds on the audiogram. We want to see if that's changed. But we also want to see if your ability to understand words has changed. And sometimes the audiogram doesn't change, but your ability to understand words. Uh, Declines. Uh, That can happen uh, as you get older, and the testing will help us determine if there's an issue there or not.
0: Well, so we need to keep that in mind, even if we are wearing hearing aids. Exactly. Brian, I also wanted to have you just briefly mention about uh, something, a product called personal sound amplification products, just so our listeners understand the difference. We've been talking a lot about hearing aids, but how do those? the personal sound amplification products differ from hearing aids in terms of effectiveness and cost. What do we need to know?
1: I'm glad you brought that up. Personal sound amplification products, what we call PSAPs, look to the untrained eye, at least, exactly like prescription and over-the-counter hearing aids. The difference is a PSAP is an unregulated sound enhancer, uh, the FDA several years ago issued what they call draft guidance around the uh, sale and distribution of PSAPs. And essentially a PSAP can only be, can be marketed and sold to somebody as a hearing enhancer who, uh, and the intended wear of a PSAP would be somebody with normal hearing that wants enhancement of their environmental sounds, like a bird watcher would be a good example of somebody who would be a PSAP user. The challenge of course, is they look a lot like, exactly like hearing aids in many cases. And if you're walking around a store and electronics, uh, big box retail store, and you see one of these, you might say, oh, this is a heck of a deal on a hearing aid. Uh, But PSAPs are unregulated, uh, which means that the quality is really uneven. Some of them, a handful of them perform similar to basic hearing aids uh, but most of them are nothing more than just really cheap amplifiers that in many cases can actually make hearing worse because they have a lot of distortion they have a very, what we call a narrow bandwidth and uh, <laughs> they actually make it harder to hear than easier to hear.
0: Well good to know that So we're just about out of time. Any final comments about preventing hearing loss and uh, how we can get more information that you would like our listeners to know?
1: No, I think just like anything, uh, when it comes to healthcare, you want to be a educated, savvy consumer. I think it's really good to go to vetted websites. Um, I would recommend uh, the American Academy of Audiology. Uh, If you Google that, you would find uh, they have a, consumer uh, education page or link on there or the the, uh, academy of doctors of audiology american speech and hearing association they all have really good vetted material for consumers do your homework Uh, find a licensed professional who you feel you can trust that has your best interest at heart that offers you choices um, that does things like this quick speech and noise test uh, that follows best practices. I think it's important that whoever you see uh, is up to date on technology and on best practices and uh, you know, ask them a lot of questions and make sure that you have choices.
0: Okay. Well, I want to thank Dr. Brian Taylor, who is an audiologist. He's also the Senior Director of Audiology with Signia. So thank you, Brian, so much for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks, Cheryl. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, of course, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at this site, you can access all of the Aging Matters uh, podcasts that we have produced, as well as the TV show episodes. And those podcasts are also available on Apple and Spotify. So be sure and check out our website to access all of those programs, both radio and TV and podcast. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and we are always grateful to that company for helping us to produce these great Aging Matters programs. So thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.